0: Thank you so much for your support by listening to this Nichols College Alumni Podcast. In only six months, we're up to nearly 100 subscribers and 200 listens per episode. I need your help in passing word along about this show to your fellow alumni and classmates. The more subscribers, listens, and reviews this Nichols College Alumni Experience Podcast gets, the more we move up in the featured higher education podcast category, which means more national attention for your alma mater. Now let's start the show. The bison the bison The bison the bison The 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 bison he? the, the bison the the, 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 bison, the bison The the, the bison I think I hear he? the bison I think I hear a bison coming Hello And welcome to the Nichols College Alumni Experience Podcast. Today we're here to talk about 3D printing with Nichols alumni Frank Basilico, who graduated in 2016. 3D printing is one of the fastest growing technological industries, and was recently named one of PricewaterhouseCoopers Essential 8 Technologies. Frank is the founder and CEO of Intego, which is a technology company specializing in 3D printing. Intego secured three U.S. patents for protecting and authenticating digital rights for 3D printing and has exclusive relationships with Gumby and Relic Entertainment. Today, we're going to talk about the future of 3D printing, the implications of 3D printing on the business and consumer worlds, how COVID may have changed the game for his industry, and the daily life of a startup entrepreneur. Welcome to the Nichols College Alumni Experience Podcast, Frank. Hey, how's it going?
1: Great. Thanks for joining us today. Our last episode, uh, you may have heard, featured Rick Battenberg. Was he a former teammate of yours? Uh, Yeah, at Nichols College, actually,
2: and um, probably one of the biggest supporters in helping us get this company started, actually, about four or five years ago.
1: Wow. Yeah, Rick spoke a little bit about being a venture capital leader in the legalized cannabis industry on our last show. And I'll tell you the same thing that I told Rick before doing some research for today's show. I didn't know much about 3D printing, so I'm excited to learn more about the industry's future and some of the implications it has on business. So let's start off by talking about the uh, fast-growing world that you're in right now. What exactly is 3D printing and why is this technology so relevant today?
2: When we started about Four or five years ago when we started looking at 3d printing it's kind of ironic actually i was listening to rick's podcast yesterday when he explained you know how he jumped into cannabis and i think one of his first thoughts was you know does he think that this industry is going to be something that thrives or pushes through at least from a legal standpoint you know he saw the opportunity to use colorado as a way to kind of grow his business about 2009 3d printing started to take a turn towards the negative uh, where now we start to see the verbiage of the industry more geared towards additive manufacturing, the AM industry. I would say the biggest takeaway right now from a 3D printing perspective is, you know, the traditional thoughts that people have with it, which is prototyping, uh producing low-cost parts, ability to bring, you know, a product to market faster, essentially. What's ironic is probably most people don't really understand uh, the manufacturing capabilities or even realize that some of these manufactured parts are uh, in their society today. Like most people don't really understand that the uh, most planes they fly on, for example, uh, the tables and trays and armrests, most of them are 3D printed. And it's kind of integrated into our lives from a commercial standpoint, at least behind closed doors, where now we're actually starting to see more of a focus, you know, given actually what's happened with COVID, into more of the application services of it and how it actually can be used in society today from a consumerism
1: standpoint. In terms of what I was thinking, so from a consumer standpoint, I think about 3D printing as something I've heard a lot about over the last decade or so, but kind of like virtual reality technology, the consumer really hasn't noticed it yet. And You know, I'm not taking walks through Rome after work on my treadmill from a reality (laughs) standpoint, but there's a lot of interesting uses that are just kind of coming to the forefront with 3D printing. I I know that sneaker companies like Reebok and New Balance are Mm -hmm. doing a lot of testing right now on 3D printed sneakers. A lot of people who are listening would probably be surprised that an Israeli company called uh, Redefined Meat just introduced the right. world's first 3D printed vegan steak using soy and pea protein links. It's actually getting pretty good reviews. So, given all these possibilities of 3D printing's uses and the endless nature of it, can you talk a little bit about how your company, Inigo, decided to target the action figure and, and gaming figure space? No, absolutely. And I, th- I think your question
2: is geared to us in a way that uh, makes our team more excited to look at what we're trying to achieve with figurines and the out manufacturing space. Just to take a step back, what, what we do at Intego, essentially, what, we, what we're providing, what we saw as the biggest problem in you know, 3D printing or the additive manufacturing industry, is that none of these printers had any communication devices with them and they weren't networking together. And right away for us, we started to realize, okay, where's the value? You know, you look at today's market in terms of just, you know, the digital era, right? You know, the iPhones and the mobile apps. And what's the biggest problem they still have today that they're still trying to overcome, which is security. So we realized right away that, and this is where I go back to my first thought where I said, you know, when Rick was looking at the cannabis industry taking a a negative in the sense and not being legalized in other states and being able to use that as a fence to grow a business, we started to realize that back in 2016, uh, and this is before some of the technology capabilities that are allowing us to 3D print these figurines today wasn't actually available. The thought to us was, okay, once these printers innovate uh, to a certain point, there's going to be companies and, you know, brands, IP holders, right, that, that want to use additive of manufacturing to produce their products. So the, the, the thought really there for us was, was kind of based around, okay, well, these designers, they have this, these unique pieces of IP, but where's the value in the design? Now, for example, I, so you're going to produce um, a phone case on your home printer. You physically have to go, okay, well, how hot do I want to make the print bed? How hot do I want to make the print nozzle? At what speed is this nozzle moving and also from the designer standpoint how it's designed and sliced for people who don't understand what slicing is that's when you have a 3d model it goes through a slicer which cuts it up into thousands and thousands of layers that the printer head reads and follows almost like a an architect all of those little pieces if you can imagine you you may design a product once put it onto the printer set the settings up and realize that it, it just didn't work it doesn't look the same it's not consistent it's not coming out and you'll spend a lot of time working on what we call parameter settings. Now, this is the, the value process of that design mixed with the way the designer designed the product and how it was sliced. So all that information essentially is in the physical world, in a real manufacturing world, right, is the, is the labor process. All of that labor process now is open for everyone to see. Now, if you, you know, for, for us, we are like, okay, if you were a, a brand like ray Bands and you're going to make a pair of sunglasses, there's a reason why these companies aren't coming to manufacturers because they're putting, in, say, thousands of dollars and some for commercial standards, like so for aerospace, millions of dollars into the parameter signs of these IPs, but there's no protection for them. So the benefits mm-hmm. of 3D printing serves no purpose when as soon as that just like almost like a floppy disk or a CD can be burned, can be you know, extracted away. That's a very negative sign. And in a digital world, you know, you can get away with certain things and be able to capitalize. But when you start to begin to build physical products that people can have and then someday be able to actually produce in their own homes, that's a very big concern that, you know, that's, that's where our company lives. So what we've built is um, a security network where we're trying to work with 3D printers across uh, different market segments, whether it's plastic, full color, single color resin base for uh, dental implants and, you know, companies like Invisalign and you know metal based printers nylon based printers our goal is to provide these security protocols and network these different printers across different verticals together to enable a network of printers just like we have a network of phones today but we want to create an interface for everyday people to develop products on their websites that now can leverage by this network the thought for us is is more about how the web how a website gave you the relief of not having to have a storefront but you still had to take in that inventory and say push out products now we're going to be pretty much another website extension where you don't even need to hold the inventory of those products so now you completely eradicate the biggest pain points when it comes to being a business that resells something or manufactures and sells something which is the inventory risk of, of everything and you're actually offering the consumer the ability to change or alter that product or personalize it for them because we're manufactured in real time when you ask about Intego figures uh, what that is for us is more of a use case to the world we we actually don't want to be in the space of creating applications for our network you have 3d digital assets right now you can convert those 3d digital assets into our platform but what that means for the business now is they have no inventory risk right they didn't have to project we have hundred thousand customers we need to produce hundred thousand products and this is the leftover stock inventory um, they didn't have to actually make the decision to live in, in a time period where they're like, okay, well, this product here that we want to build, we're noticed is getting a lot of hype right now. It's going to take us four to six months to get everything set up, right? To create the mold, get the product right, go through that product, get them produce in mass quantities, then store that product. So our biggest USP to these businesses with our platform right now is we can market the hype and compete in areas where your competitors can't so for example we actually sat down with fortnite and our biggest selling point to them was how many times do you have a character you know over the a two-month period that gets a lot of digital downloads to play this video game and they can notice that this hype for this character has been created and then they'll get ready to create maybe a figurine part for it using an injection mold or a manufacturer provider to only find out that five months later, they've already released eight more characters and the hype for that character has already gone away. So there's mm. a market, there's a, a time period where right now physically where we can live where injection molding can't, where Amazon can't, where these big competitors can't. But what that really means is now you have an independent app developer who makes a cool game and you know, he's got 30,000 customers. Well, that's, it's not Marvel, it's not Star Wars. They're not going to be able to order millions of dollars of manufacturing. But they did put all this time and effort to make the 3D characters in the game so they can use those assets now to supply their existing customers, figurines from characters from their games.
1: If I'm, a, let's say, a movie producer and I produce a a movie, you know, in the time that it goes in the can from the time that all the action figures and that type of thing come out for the superhero in the movie, let's say that the actor kills somebody or does something horrible and all of a sudden it's like, I can't roll this figure out. So this figure, which now I have a million units of, I can't sell, what do I do with these figures? Whereas 3D printing, it would be more like, okay, we'll just kill this file and figure out what to do on another character. Is that kind of where that's going?
2: And it's, it's as blunt as that. And what's exciting, right, is that it's as um, replicated as that throughout different markets. So, you know, uh, for example, like a company like Ray-Bans, right? They sell their sunglasses to their consumer and they have a return rate of that customer of like 1.3. Like, so every year and three months, a customer comes back to get a new pair of sunglasses. They have thousands of CAD files from products that they were thinking about doing and, and, and they ended up narrowing it down to a few different designs that they're gonna release for that year. They take in all these sunglasses, for example, hoping that that customer is gonna come back in a year and a half, pretty much. Now that's a lot of time to hold inventory and to be hopeful that a customer is gonna come back via let's what's called you know, additive manufacturing. They can now just upload those sunglasses, right? To a platform. And enable, for example, the customers to personalize and customize them, or just purchase and print as they are. Ray-Ban says to you, "Hey, we know you're probably not going to come back, you know, for a year and a half. So why don't you hold on to this file, right, in our security, you know, in our security cloud? And say you go to an amusement park and it breaks, you can now print it off in another copy and just pay the material usage for it. And what you can begin to actually change consumerism in the sense of maybe the sunglasses now are $135. Maybe Maybe it is just 10% on on the cost of the material, cost the printer to use it because now you're changing the consumer rate instead of them coming back once every three years. Maybe they're coming back once a month now to change their sunglasses, to personalize them, to customize them. And what you're really doing is actually taking the business threats away from, you know, and I think obviously Nicholas College is is very big into, into marketing, but you're taking a lot of these questions you know that marketers and advertisers have to try to figure out out of, the, out of the equation by saying to the customer, through a model viewer, here's the file, you could change the color, you could change the, the shape size. I guess my biggest takeaway 3D printer, the biggest problem I come across a lot is it's a very engineered based industry. And a lot of times they're not thinking so far ahead to the point of what does this mean for the end consumer? What does this mean for the business? It means for a financial person, your manufacturing budget is now moving over to a marketing budget,
1: where do you see the industry headed? And uh, would you consider it to be um, a disruptor so, and industry and at this point? I know right now
2: the, the the famous terms that people are using in the industry, especially um, the best use case to answer this question might just be COVID. We kind of saw for the first time that, hey, this machine, you know, that every all these engineers have been designed and want these wide purposes. But if you narrow it down for specific use, it could be massively helpful. So like we, as Intigo, we printed over... 50,000 ear bands, right, for Bimbo Bakery. We, uh, we produced and printed 1,000 um, you know, face shields for the police department in Rikers Island, I think around April. What, what really began to happen was there was a use for it. Because remember what I said uh, earlier about monetizing the hype for figurines? Well, our health system, it's equipped to, to make money and design innovation. But in terms of everyone needs something at one point? This was the perfect use case for 3D printing. You know, for the first three months of this, this is what gave a lot of companies life, including ours, as a really good show and use case to say, hey, you have a 3D printer right there. We can produce these face bands. We can produce these filters. We can produce these these face shields. It was less more about like how you would be in a normal business environment well let me explain to you 3D printing. Let me explain to you this. It's no people people are freaking dying here. Like we what can you give us? Less more of a disruption and more of a capability to serve where we didn't see before. If we could have been further along, if we could have actually had our network right up and running, what we're trying what we're what we're doing right now, if COVID were to happen say next year. We may actually be in a position where you know where 3M is threatening to sue people to to resell their their face masks at a higher point. In any IP holder in this industry that could that essentially was kind of stopped by stopped by bureaucratic more red tape than anything, could have leveraged the network to say, hey, you know we got a we got a 3D printer in every single hospital. These frontline workers they need face shields. Well, now 3M can use our system to stream and print versus distribute and print to a reseller who's going to flip it and resell it. So in terms of, I think what 3D printing is, it's more of a a blank canvas, a little bit more for what cultural environment needs to serve its purpose. Things go back to normal. You know, 3D printing is going to be there as a way for smaller businesses, you know, to save inventory. But if a pandemic hits again, you know, and we we can use these machines to produce the good that these companies sell with their IP, you know, we can offer that ability to distribute very quickly for them and to ensure that they're going to be paid for it. You have the idea of how the world works a little bit where, you know, someone's in trouble. Everyone's going to come and lay a helping hand. But in, in the environment of a pandemic, it, it was very, it's very detrimental. It's still more about capital than getting the product out to people and, and, and balance sheets. And that, that's something where, you know, looking into the future, will 3D printing be a disrupting technology? I think people will look at AR and VR as the disruptive technology because I think it will interface it. But I think 3D printing will actually be that tool that, you know, helps solve global warming, you know, it stops trade deficits, stops IP theft. And more importantly, I think brings back power to the individual consumer. You know, my goal with all this was never to begin to start to sign IP holders and bring them on. I just wanted the ability for the, the first thought was some kid to see a 3D printer in a, you know, in a shop by a beach and say, hey, I don't need to think of anything. I'm just going to design a sand bucket. And if it Prince, I make a couple bucks off of it, or I'm a student at, you know, uh, a big university with 50,000 students, I can, you know, design a a beer koozie that maybe all 30,000 people buy for the game. And I, I just made 60 grand and can pay my college tuition off, you know, these little things that I'm kind of talking about were capable in 2009 and what i'm really trying to do is bring that to life but make sure that to enable the individual consumer who knows nothing about technology to leverage this network to create a business and i think for me that's that's the end goal and i i don't know what this network will produce uh, my goal is just to kind of you know build it show some use cases and i think we'll just see some creative people come along and say hey you know we can design some of the coolest personalized things, you know, maybe products we've never seen before, just because they, they would have never had the chance because they didn't have a hundred grand to put down to make an injection mold. And these ideas get fall, fall by the waistline just because of the way the world works. You're gonna produce it in China. You gotta ship it back. You gotta find a place to store it. You know, that's a lot of money. And f- to have the ability to manufacture now, like as, as easy as it is for you to upload a song to YouTube, I think that would be a great first. I mean, that would be the the home
1: run step. What, what are some things you remember taking away from your time at Nichols College that really kind of still helps you to this day or that you still use as a CEO? There's a couple of things. Um,
2: if there's one thing that, was the most shocking to me. It was a cultural communications class I took, which really was probably the biggest reason to why I started a company. Um, the teacher showed a video about Simon Sinek, actually one and read his book. For any student looking at entrepreneurship, the real question you start to think is, well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. This book was able to lay a framework down that enabled me to follow something in essence about what I have to be thinking about as an individual, less about more what I have to, Do what does it mean, you know, to think of a product? What does it mean to sell a product? When I was at Nichols, this cultural communication class, what really blew my mind was just that these different businesses around the world, different cultures, right? Their their social norm of let's say good or their social norm of kind of like uh, respect changed, and that was something you know very odd but unique to me that you know you could be doing something presented to you know a business in a certain country and follow their rules of efficacy and then bring those over to a different country and actually be very insulting. Those types of courses that I didn't think at the time when I was there, I always thought they were more, most fascinating to me. And it might be some of the biggest tools in terms of building a widespread team. Uh, our developer, you know, my development partners in the UK, our development team um, is in Lahore, Pakistan and some areas of the UK as well. Our COO is in Boston. And I mean, even Boston and New York has cultural differences. And I think that's the biggest lesson is that there hasn't been one thing that I've ever done that I've planned that's gone to plan. You're kind of moving on the fly and adjusting to cultural situations, business situations. Your business is dependent on the, you know, undecided laws and regulations put in by legislators, you know, established by different 50 senators. So, you know, you're, you're always kind of moving. And the only thing that you can ever have control over, you know, is yourself and the principles to what you do. So at the end of the day, you want to be able to make a decision. You may only have 10 seconds. You may only have some days you'll have 10 minutes. Maybe sometimes you have a week. But sometimes when these decisions come up, you need to be able to identify your core principles, what makes you, what makes your subjective good different from everyone else's. You've rewrote the business plan more than a thousand times. And the only thing that's ever stayed there has just been the security and efficacy, you know, of the network being the driver to what makes it work. And I think, you know, as a nickel student, you may come up trying to figure out, okay, like who's the marketing manager, you know, who's going to do the books. And, you know, this is the idea and we're going to sign up customers. And what it's like, Mike Tyson said, you know, you're ready to go until you get punched in the face. If I could say anything to any nickel student and, you know, to be truthful about it, tough times, it's not about business decisions that test your character. It's more about when we got our first investment in and I had a small salary for it, I knew that the 3D printing business that we were developing wasn't going to create revenue until year three. So I was only on a salary till year one. So what do I have to do knowing this, you know, in the year with this salary to project it across two years? And that may be as sad as it says, eating two meals a day. That may be not seeing your friends anymore on Saturday and Sunday. But what you start to develop around you are these teams of people that want to push this long fair, so that will work this Saturday, that will take on the Sunday and go into Monday because it's not necessarily work. It just it, it starts to become a lifestyle of it's like anything else. If you love what you do, you, you kind of fight to make it work, and it really switches your head to thinking of, Okay, like we're gonna make this work in year one. Then all of a sudden, someone gives you their money, and you know they're calling you every day. They're calling you every day at seven a.m. to see you know what the schedule is, and you know they're calling at the end of the month to see what the what the product roadmap is. And you know there is no syllabus, there is no there is no answer. And what you really start to realize is you know at the end of the day, because that's what how it does feel is like if I'm gonna fail, I need to make sure that the people who give me money and the people that put their time in here that are put taking equity and not taking salary that if there was a failure here that we all can kind of hang our hats on say we did everything we can
1: yeah that's a great way to describe it and i know that you know last year you volunteered to be one of our alumni panelists in uh, professor mori palto's idea lab class and that class allowed a, a select group of students to design a business for development work through a business plan I believe it was you and Dennis Albano, who is the CEO of Zixi, mm-hmm. Nate Smith, who is the CEO of Absolute Machinery, kind of came in and uh, gave them a little suggestions early on in the process to help tweak that business plan. So, I mean, we appreciate that. And it's always great to see Bison alumni coming back to the classroom. As you said, any experience that can be shared that cuts a few years or months or or mistakes out of your business plan is a huge one. And and that's something that you know Nichols really, really benefits from. So, did were there any professors that you wanted to uh, give shout outs to from your time at uh, the Hill?
2: I know Megan, obviously Megan Nocevelli. For me, Megan Nocevelli was someone that. I had, when I was at Nichols, I actually created a mobile app. That was my first step into the tech space. I took the money I saved up. I actually quit the hockey team. We won the championship that junior year. I quit my senior year when I was trying to decide what I wanted to really kind of do with my life. And I said, you know what? Like, let me take a crack at this software thing just because, you know, the thought in my head was if you could build something right once, it it could have a lot of value. And if I'm going to leave, you know, Nichols College with something, I want some sort of experience. And she was very instrumental uh, with just supporting guidance, uh, I would say, in terms of, you know, trying to establish what it meant to start something. Um, She brought in, for me, Joe Giacobbe from Paliad to talk to me about stuff, Uh, just in terms of, you know, what does it mean to market a digital application? It's funny to say, but Joe is still here today. But what I really respected about these courses was that it's kind of like you get to have a scrimmage you know it's not like you're doing a drill or you're not learning a definition that you're never going to use you're not you know in a class that you're outside your major that you're not going to focus in on um, I, I found that Professor Nocevelli did it well for marketing the, I know the financial uh, department does a really good job in their senior year with that class as well and, and and for everyone else using strategic management and even the Fisher Institute right with you know being able to speak in front of 500 students about your presentations or ideas I think you know, those are hugely beneficial.
1: So did we, did we miss anything no, or did I, I, we
2: cover it all? Like I said, man, I, I appreciate uh, obviously you taking the time.
1: You know, certainly we're all proud of what you've accomplished since you've left Nichols. You know, we're proud to call you a bison and uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time on the podcast today. All right, thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. And I'll keep in touch.
0: The Bison, the, the, the Welcome to the den. Welcome to the pen. The herd taking the court. We going for a win. We going for it all. We'll do it till we...